The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your illustrious host, Scott Alexander. Right across me is the one, the only, the beast from the east, Tammy, the underdog, Underwood. Say grr, Tam. Hi, everybody. I want to point out that I'm wearing a shirt that has both of our pictures I on know. it. No, you're wearing our, the, you're representing both of us today. That's right. I got a Sasquatch riding on top of a dinosaur That's on my right. shirt. Because you're old as fuck, and I'm awesome. Well, what gets me? Okay, so fucking Tam's here at my house, <laughs> and she calls me up because I didn't know that you had a picture of you and I together on a on shirt. A shirt. And I'm uh, no, no, I do not. And uh, then she sent me a picture of this. I'm yeah, oh. I said, uh, yes, you do. I'm looking right at it. <laughs> yeah. You tried arguing with me. Because <laughs> I like to argue. I know. So, um, what was I going to say? I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Use good mic dynamics, you Tard. Did, see, you didn't hear my eyes roll earlier. That's what I was going to say when you said, the illustrious host. Oh, whatever. Anyway, use better mic dynamics. Yes. Yes, sir. Is that better? I don't know. Keep yapping. So, anyways, we're on the part two of the Chicago Ripper crew. Now, remember, these guys were (laughs) psycho nuts. They were like the um, Chicago heterosexual version of William Bonin. Right, right, right. I remember that. Yeah. So, I mean, they were just like, they didn't care what, they didn't have a set victimology, none of that. And then there was like four people involved, four, five. And um, it's like the cops figured out one was involved and they figured out another one was involved. And then it's like through just like interviewing people, they're like, oh, wait, you're involved, too. You know, hmm. and there was people that came forward and said that they were involved. Yeah, that was part of it. it wasn't it just Yeah, like, the last one did the other brother. Right. It, yeah. wasn't, it wasn't like they found them all like no. one came in and said, no, you no. know what? These guys are going well, down. They were interviewing the other brother, um, Thomas. And, um, you know, and he was like talking to them and they're like wait a minute he knows way more than he should know so was he involved and then he's like yeah i was involved you know (laughs) so anyways so this i'm gonna start talking about um that he this is his confession thomas's confession because he gave so many horrific details that i just couldn't believe it um, there was an occult angle to this whole case. Remember we talked about that? Right, right, right. You know, because um, the idea of a satanic serial killer has been debunked years ago. Because either A, they um, hear voices saying that they're from Satan. And you know what I mean? So it's a psychic, a psychotic issue. Correct. And then there's the ones that kill in the name of Satan to justify their killing. Like freaking... Um, Night Stalker. Oh, Richard Ramirez. Thank yeah. you. I couldn't think of his. I could picture him in my head. I couldn't think of his name. And then the other one was Richard Trenton Tate. You know, he thought he if he killed he would live. Right. He, well, he thought that if he killed he would prevent major catastrophes. No, somehow. that was what's his name. I thought that was Tate. No, that was Herbert. Oh. Mullen. No, Richard no? Trenton Chase thought that he had that he thought he had a missing aortic valve. And that if he killed and drank people's blood, oh, he that's would, right. his heart wouldn't disintegrate and turn to dust. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay, I remember now. Yeah. Yeah. Had the blenders full of, yeah, nastiness. Right. Nothing beats body parts 
falling out of uh, cupboards. Oh, yeah. And striking people in the head. That's freaking... Yeah, wait until Friday's episode. I'm excited. Yeah. So anyways, supposedly the four members of the Chicago Ripper crew had latched onto the fad that had swept the nation in the 80s. You know, this fad was a big thing with the American youth during that time, worshiping Satan. Um, However, when it came to the rituals the men performed in their efforts to commune with, quote, the Dark Lord, they went far beyond what the majority of the youth culture would have considered, would have ever considered. And at least that's what Thomas said during his confessions. After Gike, Spurcher, and the Cocorales brothers removed the flesh from the bodies of their victims, you know, the the breasts. Uh, The breasts. The breasts. Which I'm still against because I I like boobs. I know you do. There's two things that I love in this world. You know what that is? Titties and tacos. And old women. Oh, and old women with titties even better, right? Especially ones that can make tacos. <laughs> I find that. I might have to step away from the Korean girls. I was going to say, where? hey, where's my breakfast you said you were going to get me? Yeah, I said, depends what time you got here. We done already ate our breakfast burritos. You were late. Whatever, dude. Anywho, <laughs> now I'm mad. Um, however, okay, I already said that. Um, they cut the flesh into pieces and ate it. According to Thomas, each time they did this, they were participating in, quote, a form of ancient devilish communion. Apparently, most of this took place in the attic of Gek's house, where he had set up a satanic altar. Thomas stated that Gek had painted quote, painted six red and black crosses on the walls and covered the altar with a red cloth. Each of the four men would kneel around this altar as he passed, as that, as get passed, I'll just call him Robin because it's easier to pronounce, passed around the flesh of the women's breasts. Once they all had their portion, they would recite passages from the Bible while they all masturbated, I'm assuming the satanic Bible, on the piece of fatty tissue in front of them. After they had all reached orgasm, Robin would take a knife, cut the flesh they had all ejaculated on into pieces, which he passed around for them to consume. What the fuck? Yeah, dude. That's like a weird fetish porn. That's what the fuck that is. Yeah. That's weird that is more porn. than weird fetishy. That is just whole. It's like a um, what is the, like a brainwashing control thing, I think. You know what I mean? I don't even have words for that shit, If man. he could get them to participate in this psychosexual you know, thing that he had control over them. Um, According to Thomas's statements, he was a witness to the murder of at least two women, although he had been an active participant in at least 12 of the ejaculation cannibalistic rituals. The detectives were completely baffled by what they had just learned from the man sitting before them. I can't blame him. Like, seriously, if I was one of the detectives, I'd be Okay, I need to step outside. I, I need to think about this yeah, shit. Yeah, because re- just reading that paragraph made me go, "What the fuck?" <laughs> yeah, that, no, I'm right there with you. Like, mm-hmm. I'm so, okay. Yeah, continue. Yeah, fuck that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, um, while they had Thomas's full cooperation, they asked him why he so willingly took part in the morbid rituals and the murders when he knew they were illegal. With a serious look on his face, he told them that Robin was able to make them do anything he wanted them to do at any time he wanted them to do it. He didn't even waver when he stated, you just have to do it. Now, Robin was able to convince Thomas that he possessed a supernatural connection with the devil himself. He was Thomas was generally afraid of the thought of what Robin would do if he didn't obey the man's commands at all times. 
See, I told you it was a controlled thing. After law enforcement officials were finished questioning the four men, they were all booked in the Pontiac Correctional Center on numerous charges, including murder. At that time, their <laughs> bail was set at $1 million apiece. All four suspects, of all the four suspects, Robin was the only one that didn't offer any sort of confession. You know, the one, the stoic one that's like, I'll help you, but I didn't do anything. Yeah, no, I'm digging. Yeah. In fact, he blatantly refused to admit that he had been involved in the murders, nor did he have any knowledge of the details of the crimes. However, the authorities did discover that he had a skewed view of reality. He readily admitted that in the 70s, he was one of John Gacy's subcontractors. But when it came to Gacy's crimes, Robin said that the other man made one mistake. And it wasn't when he killed the 33 victims. It was that he had buried the majority of them in the crawl space under his house. I agree. Robin didn't believe that the brutality of Gacy's murders was wrong. He truly believed that Gacy had just gone about disposing of his victims the wrong way. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's no, like, and no, that, you that, killed them. That's not wrong, but you dispose of them wrong. Well, he did dispose of them. I wrong. know he did, but you know, don't keep your victims in your own home. That's that's the whole. That's point That's like here. shitting in your own backyard. Well, I've done that once or twice, but I was drunk. Or in your own weedies, you know, pissing in your own Cheerios, Scott. <laughs> oh, I bet you've done that too. Maybe. So this one time at band camp, <laughs> I was waiting for you to go. Maybe. Don't judge. Maybe. Don't judge me. <laughs> so after Robin Spritzer and the Cocorales brothers were locked up in jail, detectives continued questioning their relatives and known associates. They quickly discovered that the other three men weren't the only ones who were afraid of Robin. They weren't even the only ones who believed that the man had true powers of evil. Several other people indicated that Robin had a, quote, real ability to draw people to him and get them to do his bidding. One individual the detective spoke with told them that if they knew what was best for them, they wouldn't look get Robin straight in the eyes. That's where Robin ha- held the power to get the others to do what they want. He wanted. All he had to do was lock them, look them in the eye, and it didn't matter how disgusting or macabre the act was, the other person would agree to take part in it. According to the reports I read, Robin began his abhorrent acts by sexually molesting his sister. When it was discovered what he was doing to her, his parents sent him to his grandparents' house. Sometime during the time he was going through puberty, he became interested in the occult and the rituals involved in communing with Satan himself. Although when he wrote letters to the author who who wrote the book, uh, Letters from Death Row or something like that, he indicated there was no truth to any of the accounts. Now, when the press caught wind of the details during given during the confessions, they latched onto the story like a newborn calf on its mother's udder. They quickly named the four men the Chicago Rippers or the Ripper Crew as they associated their actions with those of England's Jack the Ripper. Over and over again, that people do that shit. I know. It's always Jack the Ripper. Or Jack the Stripper, but whatever. That's me. <laughs> with a full-on media circus in full swing, the prosecution had a difficult decision to make. Would they go to trial and try to convict all four men in front of one jury? Or would they sever the cases and try each man separately? In the end, they figured their best option was to have a separate trial for each member of the Chicago Ripper crew. Now, in an effort to avoid being tried for murder, 
Robin tried going for the insanity defense. Hello, saw that one coming. Yeah, that's an easy. Yeah, that's easy peasy. Several professional psychologists evaluated him to determine if he was competent enough to stand trial. They unanimously agreed that he was sane enough to participate in his legal proceedings. They also stated that at the time of the murders were committed, he was in possession of all of his mental faculties. For some reason, a mistrial was declared in his first trial. I've not been able to gather all the facts regarding that decision. However, the prosecution didn't give up. And on September 20th, 1983, he went on trial for the second time. Now, during the second trial, the prosecution team brought forth some very compelling evidence. When the authorities searched his house, they discovered the altar he had in his attic and the rifle that had matched the ballistics with the one used in the drive-by shooting of the drug dealers. However, that's not all they found. There was a substantial amount of literature on Satanism. Um, they also discovered Robin's trophy box that Andrew had described for them. The one which he stated at one point held at least 15 breasts inside. And the prosecution was able, also able to glean an MO from all the reports they gathered from the victims and autopsy reports. Each victim was abducted from the streets, held captive by the members of the crew while they were tortured mercilessly with ice picks and needles. Then they were subjected to a gang rape before one of the men took a garrote to remove their breasts, which were used in their satanic rituals. Now, most of the members, victims died, sorry, not members. However, autopsy reports indicate that they were most likely alive during the mutilation process. Therefore, they felt every ounce of pain that was inflicted upon them before they succumbed to their injuries. Let's not forget that two women managed to survive their ordeal with the crew. They would have to live with the horrific memories of the hell they went through at the hands of these four men for the rest of their lives because they were physically disfigured. You know? That's a bad thing. Okay, I would kill somebody if they tried to remove my breasts. I'll be right back. What, you want me to hurt you? <laughs> Oh, I got to text my caseworker back in a minute. Um, Now, during his Robin's trial, he insisted on taking the stand to defend himself. You know, like every stupid idiot does. There were some reports that indicated he fully admitted to being involved in the attack on Beverly Washington. However, when he took the stand, he maintained that he wasn't involved in any of the deaths, nor had he participated in any rape or aggravated assault. According to his testimony, when the majority of the murders took place, he hadn't even met the other guys of the crew yet. The prosecution was able to present some very compelling testimonies from eyewitnesses. They even managed uh, to find some women to testify that Robin, at some point, asked them to remove their nipples for him to keep. However, one of their best pieces of evidence was ruled not admissible. Those were the confessions the authorities received from the other men that clearly implicated Robin as an accomplice in the crimes. In other words, there wasn't any physical evidence to link Robin to any of the murders, not to mention when it came down to it, none of the other three members of the crew would take the stand to testify against him. Therefore, in the end, he was not charged for any murder. Despite Jesus Christ, I know man, what the fuck? Yeah, but check this out. Despite that obvious setback, the jury returned from deliberation with a guilty verdict on all the counts he was charged with, with rape, attempted murder, aggravated battery, deviant sexual assault, and armed violence. In the end, the judge gave him 120 years. So you know what? He got life anyways. Yeah, okay. but still. Now, now, Andrew Cocorales is going on trial 
twice. Um, he was faced trial in two different counties. His first trial was for the charges related to the murder of Rose Davis. When he gave his confession, he told the detectives that he and the other men had abducted Rose by forcing her to get into the van, you know, the Chimo van, mm-hmm. after they had sexually assaulted, tortured, and mutilated her, he said that he beat her in the head with a hatchet until she died. This confession was used against him in trial, so he really didn't have a solid defense. In fact, the jury was out for a little more than three hours before they returned with their verdict. Andrew was guilty of Rose's rape and murder, and he was given life in prison without the possibility of parole. Um, by the time his second trial began... He Cocorales, re- yeah. part two, the sequel. The Cocorales. They're, they're great, by the way. Um, by the Sounds time, like cucarachas to me, which is cockroaches. Yeah, well, you know what you are, don't you? <laughs> time I know you got fleas and ticks. I got to get you back on that flea and tick medication. Back on my next guard, bitch. Back on next guard. Shut up, I hate you. You have a vet appointment tomorrow, by the way. Do I? Do I really? Yeah. Is it time for my rabies shot? Time for your rabies shot. It's you. time for you to get back on next guard. I might take not, you to the groomer. I do not like you, Sam. I am. Good. Hey, Can I get my hair did? Don't bite the fucking groomer this time. Can I get my hair did? No, they're just going to like hose you off. I hate you. Sprinkle you with some smell good and kick you out. Shut up. By the time Andrew's second trial began, like I said, he'd recanted his confessions. All four of them. He completely denied being involved in the act of raping, murdering, or murdering any victim. He stated that he only offered his confessions after being coerced by the detectives. In fact, he claimed that the detectives, quote, made false promises. And when he didn't tell them what they wanted to hear, they beat him until he complied. When that Andrew, tracks. Yeah. When Andrew recanted his statements, Brian Talander, the lead prosecutor for the second trial, painstakingly combed over all four of the interrogator all four of the interrogations he had been through, three with six different detectives and one with two prosecutors. Even then, Andrew maintained that he said what he said on tape was what they told him to say before they pressed the record button. According to his testimony, one of the officers had provided him with all the details of one of the crime scenes so that he would know everything when he gave the confession tip for the record. The detective, Warren Wilkosh, was called to the stand to give testimony about the interrogation. He stated that when he interrogated Andrew, he laid several photos of women in front of the man, and Andrew picked out the one of Lori Borowski and stated, that's the girl Eddie Spritzer and I killed in the cemetery. In the end, it was an issue of who was more convincing to the jury, right? Andrew came across as a surly, angry man. His accounts of being ethically mistreated by eight different law enforcement officials was highly questionable at best. Their jury was only out for approximately three hours again. Some reports say it was only one before they announced they were ready to deliver a verdict. They not only found Andrew guilty, they recommended death. During the sentencing phase of Andrew's trial, he, he again stated that he was innocent of the charges. One me. His defense team argued that although the jury found him guilty, he did not deserve to be given the death sentence. They even managed to get the prison chaplain and one of the prison counselors to testify on their client's behalf. According to both of them, Andrew wasn't a threatening inmate and he was a good candidate for rehabilitation. Bullshit! Uh, well, that tracks too. Oh my God! He snowballed him. Let Andrew go. Let Andrew go. Let my peep set my people free. Set my people free. <laughs> you Greek. Hey, Andrew's lives matter. <laughs> I hate you. 
Now, it didn't seem to matter what Andrew's attorneys argued or what he claimed what he claimed to the judge. In the end, the judge decided that the crime and charge warranted the death penalty. He was sent to Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill, Illinois, to await his execution. You know what's in state? What was in Stateville? Uh, Andrew was. No. Um. <laughs> now I forgot his name. The Queen Bee. Oh no, uh, Richard um, Speck. Yeah, Speck. Yeah. Yeah. Speck was an interesting one to do in research. Dude, he was. He was. So after Andrew was sentenced, he was given new attorneys for his appeals process. In the appeals they filed, they argued their client had received, quote, ineffectual counsel at sentencing. They also stated that, as was the case of Rose Beck Davis's murder, the murder of Lori Borowski did not sufficiently warrant a death sentence, but of life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. According to the appeals documents, the prosecutors was not able to prove Andrew's, quote, intent to kill, nor were they able to prove any degree of premeditation. In 1989, the high courts rejected his appeal and his death sentence was upheld. When that failed, his attorneys tried a different approach. This time, they didn't try to deny that the client had committed the murders. However, they did argue that he suffered from schizophrenia. Therefore, when the murders took place, he was not aware of what he was doing. The new attorneys say that... Too, by I the know, way. right? It's like, you know what? If one defense doesn't work, let's try another. Feeling bad for my brother, Andrew. You know what it is? It's like, pick a card, any card. Yeah, and that's what they're doing, honestly. Yeah. They're just reaching. Yeah. Re- they're just grabbing the straws. They're just reaching in the grab bag. Yep. They're like, yeah, maybe this will work. Schizophrenia. That's what we got off the uh, off the little sheet of paper here. Yeah. That's what came up on the, you know, the randomizer. The new <laughs> attorneys say that Andrew's trial attorneys should have tried for the insanity defense. In fact, it seems they didn't e- even have him evaluated by a psychiatrist, which was a considerable oversight considering his diagnosis. Not only that, according to the appeal documents, when the judge learned that his attorneys had failed to order the psychiatric evaluation, he should have done so himself, and he didn't. According to a report from prison, one of their psychiatrists had evaluated Andrew and diagnosed him with, quote, borderline personality disorder. As a result of that diagnosis, he would not have been, quote, found competent to stand trial, according to their arguments. Their arguments also indicate that Andrew was, quote, vulnerable to a strong influence and was therefore not entirely responsible for what he had done. I agree. That's what I'm saying. Let Andrew go. Let Andrew go. However, in the eyes of the law, a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder from a psychiatrist is not enough to deem someone insane or incompetent to stand trial. You want to know why? They're racists. No, it's because just because you're borderline doesn't mean you don't know right from wrong. I don't think Andrew did. Poor guy. What the fuck ever. Well, uh, oh, see, you're racist too. No, I'm just stupidest. <laughs> Poor Andrew, buddy. I have a thing against stupid people. I um, think he's innocent. Let's say, where was I? Do, 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 do. Where was I? Oh, there it was. Therefore, it was a rather weak argument on their part, to say the least. Now, the district judge who reviewed the appeal asked Andrew's trial lawyers lawyers about the issues brought up in the document. They stated that, quote, no pattern of of aberrant behavior had made anyone who knew the defendant suspect of a psychotic disorder, psychiatric disorder. That was enough for the judge to declare the appeal affidavit was not persuasive. During the hearing, Andrew's appeal. 
appeals attorney tried to draw a connection between his rather peculiar behavior and his aberrant condition. Even though the judge took their argument into consideration while he decided the matter, he concluded that abnormal behavior does not imply the type of mental impairment required for finding an insanity. In fact, he issued a 41-page opinion which stated that he found, quote, found no reversible error and therefore Andrew's death sentence was reaffirmed. This is what I have to say. If they didn't find Richard Trenton Chase insane, how is this guy going to win his argument? He's insane. Whatever, dude. Poor Andrew. Whatever. Even though all seemed lost at the time, it wasn't the end of the line for Andrew. In fact, there was already a bill being tossed around by the Illinois government that should it pass, all of the death sentences in the state would be overturned. Now, Andrew Cocorales' execution date was set for March 17, 1999. However, some last-ditch efforts were made with the governor of Illinois at the time, George Ryan. As a result, Supreme Court Justice Moses Harrison was— I like that name. I know, right? That's very black, too. You know what? I don't think he is, though. No way. I have I, never known. I'm I not, don't I'm not saying if I have it, a picture of him or not. I'm not saying it to be a dick or anything. No. Just every black guy, everybody I've ever known named Moses. True. It was a big, strong, like, you know, Burly. black dude. Burly black dude. Yeah. He was urged to issue a stay of execution. Not only that, he was also pushing for Ryan to issue a temporary pro prohibition on all of the scheduled executions in the state of Illinois. It was around that time that the Chicago Tribune ran a series of articles that vigorously campaigned for the abolishment of the death penalty. According to those articles, the Illinois legal system was filled with numerous injustices that could no longer be overlooked. In fact, in a move that shocked Governor Ryan, approximately 12 prisoners in in Illinois had already been removed from death row with exonerations. A few of those inmates earned their exoneration from the DNA evidence, while some others earned theirs when it was revealed that their case was poorly handled by the legal system. However, there was the case of Anthony Porter in particular, which was very disturbing, and I found it disturbing myself. According to the article in the American Spectator, Anthony Porter, an African-American male with an IQ of 51... Which Jesus. is lower than Anthony Bo- Charles that's, Anthony that's, Boyd. That's fucking. That puts him into the stage of yeah, retardation, like way into it. Yeah, like that's and that, yeah. I'm using like he's not even borderline. A, I'm using the word retarded as the clinical actual, sense. The clinical right. sense. No, I agree. Fifty-one. You're well into being yeah. mentally retarded. Yeah, you're not even borderline because it's like sixty-nine or below. Fifty-one is it's, way below sixty-nine. Yeah. Yeah, he had been sitting on death row for approximately 16 years after being convicted of a double homicide. He had exhausted all of his appeals and his execution was set for September 23rd, 1998. However, before the day of execution arrived, a a professor from Northwestern University and an abolitionist for the death penalty found exculpatory evidence in his case that could have exonerated him. Two days before he was to be executed, he was issued a stay. During that time frame of the state, during the time frame of the state of execution, another man came forward and confessed to committing the murders. I think I'm so. If he didn't get that stay, he'd have been executed for being innocent. Right, and we we were talking about there was another one that we did where we, you and I, it was the Charles Anthony Boyd one. Yeah, yeah, um, with Charles Anthony Boyd, he has. An IQ in the 50s. Well, no, his IQ was 71. Was so it 71? They, yeah, so it was above the legal definition of mentally <coughs> retarded, but it was still, like, way below normal. 
Right. Way but, before even. But like, he also vulnerable. had some other mental conditions yeah. to go along with that. Yeah. You know, so that was one of the rare ones where I started off just the information you're giving me, like, oh, yeah, no, kill this asshole. Yeah, no. And by the if end it of walks it, like a duck, talks like a duck, it's a fucking duck. And then you gave me more information. Well, I, yeah. I think this dude really didn't do it. Yeah, because I seriously believe his brother did. I do. Yeah, that's. I, I honestly do. And I think that his brother, if you do hear this podcast, like many people here in the U.S. do, do the right thing, dude. Yeah. Step up. Yeah, your brother already died for what you did. How I mean, how low can you be that yeah. your brother had to suffer like that? Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, because 31% of the population had that genetic marker, which tells you his brother probably had it, too. Oh, yeah. So they can't narrow it down by that. So this was proof positive that the state of Illinois had not only prosecuted, but also convicted an innocent man of murder, and they were willing to put him to death as a result. <laughs> Even though Governor Ryan was faced with obvious evidence of injustice, he wasn't persuaded to place a moratorium on death sentences in the state, especially since Andrew's case was still on the books for ex- execution. Someone he believed truly deserved the death sentence. I think it was framed. Yeah. In the end, the Illinois State Supreme Court, in a four to three vote, which tells you it was very close, reversed Harrison's stay of execution. With that decision, a few hours before Andrew's sentence was to be carried out, Governor Ryan released a three-page statement to the public. In essence, this is what was in that statement. A jury of his peers had decided what Andrew's fate would be according to the law of the land. He made every attempt available to him available to him to appeal that sentence over the past 16 years and they had all been rejected by the higher courts. Therefore, Ryan, as the governor, quote, was not about to stand in the way. In short, there was nothing preventing the state from executing Chicago Ripper member. Now, despite Governor Ryan's statement to the public, the morning before Andrew's scheduled execution, he held out a thread of hope and convinced himself that it wasn't going to take place. Prison officials flew him from Stateville Correctional Center to the Supermax facility in Tams, Illinois. Which, by the way, I told you this story. When you see the the Welcome to Tams, Illinois sign, it says, Home of the first Supermax, a great place to live. <laughs> yep. So, my question is, is, is Tams a great place to live or the Supermax? The Supermax. Yeah, you know. Four hots on the cot, right? Yeah, exactly, man. So Andrew decided to speak to a few of his remaining friends over the phone to say his goodbyes. Then when he spoke to his other brother, not Thomas, he cried and prayed with him. However, he was still convinced that he wouldn't be he would be given a pardon in the last minute. As Andrew was being strapped to the gurney, he offered up a last statement. He apologized to Lori Borowski's family, then said, quote, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right after that, at 12.34 p.m., he was given the final lethal injection cocktail, and a short time after that, he was declared dead. Now, by the end of January 2000, which wasn't very far off, Governor Ryan added another man, number 13, to the list of prisoners who should, quote, never have been on death row. After that, he made the announcement that he was temporarily prohibiting all executions in the state. As a result, Andrew earned the distinction of being the last man executed by the state of Illinois before the moratorium. Now, some people have stated that Ryan purposely held off on issuing the moratorium until after Andrew's execution, especially especially since he publicly stated that he had doubts regarding the entire system prior to March 17th. 
And even then, he held off. However, the only ones that are very vocal about their complaints regarding the issue have been advocates against the capital punishment. Everyone else has indicated that they feel justice was served in Andrew's case. As it turns out, Governor Ryan's decision had the complete opposite effect when it came to another member of the Ripper crew. Now, Edward Spreitzer's legal battles, right? On April 2nd, 1884, I mean, 1884, 1984, huh? Yeah, back in 1884, you know, when you were young. (laughs) Edward Spreitzer went to court and pled guilty to the murder of Rose Davis, Shui Mock and Sandra Delaware, and Raphael Torado, the drug dealer killed in the drive-by. Each murder charge earned him a prison sentence of life without possibility, not to mention the additional time he received for the other charges related to those cases, which ranged from deviant sexual assault to rape. With those cases decided, Spreitzer still had to stand trial for the murder of Linda Sutton, you know, the first victim? Right. He opted to have a bench trial on February 25th, 24th, 25th, 1986, which was presided over by Judge Edward Kowal. However, he reserved his right for a jury to decide his sentence. During that court proceeding, Spreitzer readily admitted that he and his associates had kidnapped Linda while she was walking somewhere around Wrigley Field. Once they had her in the van, the men took her to a field near the hotel she had been renting a room at. That's where they handcuffed her, raped her, severed her breast from her, and severed her breast from her body. After that, the men raped her again and left her in the field to die. Which means they didn't just—they didn't even have the decency to kill her. That's. Which, I'm sorry, I would have preferred that to suffering until I succumbed. You and know that, what I mean? That, that's my whole thing. And I, yeah. I, I bring everything back to the love of my life, Patrick Kearney. Me? No. Patrick, man. Which was, you have to write him a letter and tell I know Patrick I do. Back. But anyways, because he was part of the, tri- the, 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 the three people that I did that were the right. freeway killers. You have two of them who are doing basically what these guys did. Oh, yeah, and then some. Yeah, except the, they, there was the, the, the gay aspect to right. Bonin and Kraft. Right. As opposed to Kearney, who would lure the young men's in... Men's? Men's? Lure the young men's into his car. Lure the young men into yeah. his car. Three and snaps sh- in a Z formation. You know it, girl. <laughs> and uh, take my earrings out. And my lips are chappy. And uh, ashy. Anyway. Ashy. Uh, and then shoot them right right away oh, before yeah. they even knew that there was even a gun there. Basically, before they even shut the door. Yeah, and then he had sex with their dead bodies, which sounds disgusting. But I'll tell you what, I would much rather that happen to me than uh, have, yeah. oh, I don't know, a broom handle or pull cue shoved up my rectum. Or my wiener chopped up. I don't have a wiener. Yeah, but and you the know mutilation I mean. of wieners and things like that. Fuck yeah. Damn. Hell yeah. You know what, you know what girlfriend. But... I did great. Preach it, sister. <laughs> Anyways, so, um, what, what, oh, Carol Anfinson, like that one, who was assigned to be his public defender, she argued that he was impulsive, immature, and simplistic in his thinking. In other words, he wasn't just a young man following the orders of a gang leader. Oh, he was just a young man, excuse me, following the orders of... I lost my, Oh, of a gang leader. She implored the jury to spare him from the death penalty. Now, she called several witness, several of his relatives and known associates to the stand to offer mitigating testimony, claiming he was a compliant young man with a long history of being bullied by others. The prosecution called their 
their other witness, their own witnesses to the stand to counter the statements the defense witnesses gave. One of them included Spryche's friend who painted a completely different picture of the man on trial. According to this, quote, friend, Spryche bragged to him about what he had done. He referred to his victims as broads and laughed about how he had mutilated and killed them. Hey, look, I talk about women as broads, too. It's not a bad thing, okay? I got this broad over here on my couch. I got you. You're a broad. I got three broads that live next door to me and a lesbian broad on the other side. So, uh, it's nice. You know, I'm just saying. And you got an old broad on the end that you really can't wait to get into your bed. Oh, that's right. I got Angel over there. No, I'm talking about that one that came to your door. Oh, no, not See, Cheryl. Jesus my biggest Christ. fan knows who I'm talking about. You both are fucked up. You know that? No, I'm telling you. One of these days, you're going to piss me off, and I'm going to tell her where your bed is. Oh, it's on. <laughs> and now. I'm going to invite her in. <laughs> I am going to tell her that you need more friends. I did that, actually, to you once. You did. Hey, you and Cheryl should talk, and I just walked the hell away. <laughs> he did. He's so mean. Because <laughs> me and him run for the door. We literally try to beat each other to the door when we get back. And, no, he was mean. Now, um, in his closing arguments, the assistant district attorney claimed that Edward was every woman's nightmare and he was one of a pack of weasels. <laughs> yeah, I got a weasel in my pants. Dude, that is just so 80s. And- it's, it, hey, hey, look, these broads need to understand. I have a wonder weasel in my pants, okay? Dude, calling somebody a weasel is so 1980s. You are so not rad, <laughs> That in a shyster lawyer. ha, <laughs> ha. Uh, you know, being from the Bronx, uh, you know, I, I know a lot of shyster lawyers, so I can't I really say much about hey, are, that. Hey, are you going to swim with the fishies? <laughs> hey, hey, you better be careful with what you say to Cheryl, because <laughs> you'll be swimming with the fishies. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. So- Luigi, come over here. <laughs> Check out this broad. <laughs> I'm going to hit you. In the end, Spritzer's attempt to gain mercy failed. The judge found him guilty of murder and aggravated kidnapping on March 4th. Then, on March 20th, the jury was only deliberating for one hour before they returned with their recommendation for the death penalty. The judge upheld their recommendation and he was sent to death row at the Pontiac State Correctional Facility located in Joliet. Now, after being sentenced, Spritzer obtained an appellate attorney, obviously, Gary Pritchard, who set about filing the necessary appeals. Pritchard said that his client had been denied due process. Not to mention, after the trial, medical professionals determined that he had a level of brain damage. He even tried to argue that the judge had not given the correct instructions to the jury. Okay, but that could be totally fucking legit. It could be. I've, I've talked to several people about this yeah. that, that don't know. And for those of you that didn't hear the episode, which was really long ago... Um, I actually did a whole episode on killers. Yeah, that, on TBIs. Yeah, yeah, on TBIs, traumatic brain injuries, and it's it, it's been proven time and time again when there's yeah any damage to the frontal or prefrontal cortex of your brain, which is your impulse control, impulse control, and, and your um, and not only that, but it's like your not just your impulse control, but your um, what's the word I'm looking for? Part of your decision making. Yeah, but. But I can't remember the word. Cognitive. Cognitive reasoning. Yeah. Yeah. Cognitive reasoning. Cognitive reasoning. Yeah. Abilities. So you damage that. And Mm -hmm. the one that I always bring up when I'm telling people about this is Bobby Bobby Joe Joe Long. Long. Bobby Joe Long was kind of, okay, let's just, let's call a spade a spade. He was kind of a little bitch. Um, Yeah. Well, 
you know, he, before? Getting, he, well, yeah, before the brain injury. Yeah, he, he was kind of. He's getting bullied by his mom. Then he marries a controlling yeah, woman. He shared a bed with his mom until he was 13 and then found his girlfriend when he was 13 who controlled him, too. Right. And then yeah. he goes off into the army, which is probably the best thing for probably him. Probably was. Gets that traumatic brain injury because he gets into a motorcycle wreck. And then a but major. But that wasn't the first brain injury right, he had. Right. That's the third brain injury yeah. that he'd had. But that was the most traumatic. Yeah. And then. His impulse control and cognitive reasoning control kind of go out the window because he goes to like, what was it, masturbating like 12 yeah, times hyper, a day? Yeah, he was hyposexual. He was a hyposexuality. Yeah, it, just, it, it changed the whole dynamics mm-hmm. of, his, of his brain. And when so, they brought it up to the doctors, the doctor said, oh, that'll go away. Yeah, and it, and it doesn't. It doesn't. That's what, once you've damaged the frontal yeah. and or prefrontal cortex, that's lifetime. You know, brain will, will heal itself somewhat, but it's not going to take care of that intense you damage. Know what? I have a question. Oh, fuck my life. <laughs> Here it comes. I can already tell because you got that smart ass tone over there. What is it? Did what, you have smart-ass? a brain injury, masturbator? I hate you so much. <laughs> no, I just have pictures of your mom. Ah! Ugh, and they're hot. Brought it up. Did you know she doesn't shave? Uh, yes. I know. It's kind of <laughs> hot. Because my mom's like, I don't know, 90? It's like a gray afro. It's wonderful. Uh, no, she's not that old, but, you know, might as well be. It's a gray fro. That's what it is. Oh, my God. Where was <laughs> I? Oh, despite the best possible efforts of Pritchard, all of the appeals were rejected. Spritzer was at a point where all of his appeals were exhausted, and it seemed as if he was going to meet the same fate as Andrew, execution by the state. However, they weren't prepared for an unexpected turn of events to be developed before that could happen. Okay, hold on. I want to throw this in there as well, though, is I don't think that Andrew or this guy or anybody in the Ripper crew was actually treated fairly. Hear me out. It's not just me being a dick as no, normal. I'm, I'm listening because I'm trying to figure out where this is going. Most people get tried in the media before they it ever oh, yeah, they're guilty. gets a trial. It, they're called, it's called found guilty in the court of public opinion. So... Uh, can we talk about? Le- can we legally talk about what you got sequestered or were you you went to uh, uh, the, the the trial? That yes, I got- can because I was never called on that jury and it's over. Oh, okay, that's why I want to make sure. So you got ca- called on the conviction of two gypsy jokers. Three, that, three of them were three on of trial. Them. Three of them. That's that's yeah. which is a notorious motorcycle uh, outlaw gang. Yes, yeah, outlaw gang here in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. yes. All right. So before ever knowing that, even if you ask each juror, do you know anything about the Gypsy Jokers? People are going to say, no, you're lying. Everybody knows about the motorcycle gang. You are already guilty just because you're associated with the Gypsy Jokers. That's why I'm mad that they didn't put me on that trial because I totally would not have judged them for that. You know what? what? I don't care what that is. Just tell me what they did, and I'll tell you if I think you're right. and, and, And here's my thing. So instead of seeing the facts of the case first... And True. then what you're associated with second. True. People will see what you're associated with first. Oh, yeah. And now you're going into it um, with a preconceived notion of guilt. Right. The A, you're drug dealers, violent people, you know, that you would just as soon kill somebody than look at them. It's basically the idea that people have of outlaw biker gangs. Yeah, a- a- exactly. You know, so you that's know. why I'm saying. This was a highly publicized case. Oh, very highly publicized. So I'm thinking that every damn jury in both Andrew's case and in uh, in Spritzer's case as well. Oh, yeah. Went into there even though, oh, no, we're going to be unbiased. Bullshit. You're going in there completely biased because oh, yeah. you've seen everything. 
You've yeah. seen what the media wants you to think and believe. Oh, yeah, totally. Now, whether the media totally. was actually reporting accurate, accurately and all the truth or not, it's besides the point. I was going to say, I will tell you right now that it was probably 98% false. Yeah, I, because probably. Let me, I mean, because you and I both know that one of the reasons why I took my plea bargain is because my attorney said, you never know what a jury's going to do. And I already knew what the media had been saying. Right. You were guilty before was, you ever went I in I was there. a skinhead white supremacist, Scott. Yeah, I know. When you guys had yeah. nothing to do with the skinheads or white supremacy. Yeah. No. Considering no. that one of your boyfriends, or actually a couple of them, were, were African-American. Considering my ex-husband is Korean. Is Korean. But, you know, you're a racist. Yeah. And I it, was, yeah, I was, I was literally labeled as a skinhead white supremacist. And you know why they called me that is because my hair used to be so thick. I mean, so thick that, I mean, I could barely, it wasn't the Afro that I get now <laughs> because it wasn't as frizzy, but so I had it like shaved in the back here underneath of the nape of my neck to oh, kind of yeah, like I thin it out longer. some, you know what I mean? Not make it so heavy. Right. And I was a skinhead because of that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. before you ever went in there due to all the media coverage on your case. Oh, yeah, totally. You would have been, they could have presented every bit of evidence that showed that you had nothing to do with it. And mm-hmm. in, in your in your defense, you I had, didn't have anything to do with well, it. You not, lent friends yes. your fucking car. Yeah, I mean, I was guilty of a certain aspect of it, and I owned that, but I wasn't guilty of what they were trying to convict me of. And just just for our listeners, part of working for my company, which is Twisted Blue LLC, is we vet people. And trust me, I've looked at her case. He has. And, uh, you know, in my opinion, based on what I've seen, you had limited involvement. You were were associated with these people. You lent lent them a car not knowing what the fuck was going down. But yet... They could present that to a jury, and the jury's going to be, oh, but the media said she's a white supremacist skinhead. You're yeah. guilty. Exactly. And we all know, I mean, and in Western Washington County, where I live, that is like, I mean, that is like probably the worst thing they can convict you of is racism. <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. So, yeah, it's it was just a bogus thing, and... I mean, because I remember I, even after I got to prison, I had so many people come up to me and said, why are you so racist? I go, what? Yeah. Because they had read the articles. Yeah. It's 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 media. Yeah, totally. You know, that's uh, that's I, I had to put that in there because mm-hmm. actually I'm feeling bad for Andrew. I'm feeling bad for for, you know, this dude here, not because of what they did. No. But even though they did horrific things. OK, right. And then the fact that they had in the media, they had the whole occult aspect to it, too, which put it in a different level to the public. Oh, especially in the 80s, throughout the 90s, and the early 2000s. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. They don't believe in Jesus. That's just. Well, that's the devil music. They're listening to the. They're listening to that devil music that Ozzy Osbourne. The the Eagles. Oh, yeah. The Eagles. (laughs) But, yeah. All right, continue. I just want to throw that in there because I just—I no, I don't. I mean, I hear what you're saying. I, I, I would like to think that they would have gotten at least a fair shake. And if you know what, if it was a, if it was fair, fair, and they present all the evidence and they said, yeah, these two, this is what we have, and mm-hmm. we can prove that they did it. Fine. Hey, you know what? If if execution is on the is is on the table, by all means, carry that out. Yes. I'm okay with that. Yes. You know, let the punishment fit the crime. However, when you're not getting a fair shake. Especially when one of them, who was probably the most guilty, didn't even get tried for murder. Yeah, that's uh, I'm just I'm absolutely no, floored. No, so I do see your point. 
you know. You know, to some extent, yes. The leader of this is pretty well walking away with his hands clean. I mean, he's getting life in prison. Yeah, but he's but, not convicted of murder. But there's no death penalty yeah. on the board for him at all. Yeah, for rape or deviant sexual assault. Yeah, none. It's just it's ridiculous. Anyway, yeah. carry on. I'm sorry. I had to no, get on my soapbox no, for a minute. I mean, I just, no, I hear what you're saying. I, just, I get pissed off at the fucking media. That's, oh, that's yeah, that it. too. And I hate the justice system, but whatever. <laughs> the injustice system, excuse me. No, I agree. Yeah. So when Spritzer was 41 years old on October 2000, in October of 2002, he, along with 139 of the 159 inmates sitting on death row in Illinois, were, were allowed to have their cases heard after being influenced by the capital punishment moratorium issued by Governor Ryan. During that hearing, Pritchard again sought mercy for his client. He argued that Spritzer had an IQ of 76. Ooh, and that he's along, close to yeah, Boyd. That, along with his troubled childhood, played a major part in his susceptibility, if I can talk, to being easily manipulated by someone as confident as Robin. On the other side of the issue, family members of the victims arrived in mass in their efforts to keep him keep. Spritzer's sentence from being changed. The Daily Herald printed an article and quoted some of the family members describing him as, quote, the personification of evil. Michael Wolf, the prosecutor, backed that statement up with his own when he said the crimes Spritzer committed were the worst of the worst. Okay, but I, I want to interject this as well. Of course you're going to say that. Like, yeah. Okay, all right. Let's take my brother, Phil. <laughs> Everybody who's in the studio today realize, knows that me and Phil don't get along at all. True. You know, we don't talk. We got along for all of like an hour when my son graduated high school when we had his uh, graduation. Day. Yeah, but you guys really didn't sit together or talk together, did you? Right. I think we said all of maybe 10 words. Hi. How are you doing? Yeah. A quick bullshit session. Then we were like separate, which is fine by me. Yeah. Um, But if somebody was to, let's say, rape and kill him. Right. Okay. I would be right up there with him going, what these people did to my brother oh, yeah, totally. is the worst thing that could ever happen in the world. Because it's a family member. Because the, it's your family member. Yeah, at the end of the day, even though Phil's kind of a dick, he's still my brother. Yeah, I feel that way about my siblings, too. Well, that's because your sister's hot. No. <laughs> anyway. Or my... Never mind. But yeah, so the the media covering that right there alone. Right. You know what I'm saying? And this is what all the family members of the victims... Well, of course they're going to... They're not going to say, yeah. you know what? Thank God. Yeah, but where they the, got her and killed her. from his family? But they, it you said, know what I mean? the Daily Herald printed an article quoted uh, some of the family members describing him as, and I thought you meant the victims. Yeah, I did. I'm okay. just saying, they didn't get quotes from his family. Gotcha. I'm following now. Yeah. yeah and then, and then that's the whole thing right there, you know? Of course, they're the only going to print what sells newspapers. Yeah. A and family I agree. member saying, my son does not deserve to die, doesn't sell a paper. No, and that's that's very, very true. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a, it's a, it's a totally one sided thing here, and it's mm-hmm. bullshit. Very. You know, be fair across the goddamn board. Yeah. And it was in 1968 when the media changed, by the way. Oh. But I'm not going to get into that little issue because it's like a whole different thing. But yeah. Just before 69, dude. Yeah, 1968 is right around the time that space shuttle was stuck in orbit and they didn't think they'd be able to get it back to Earth. Didn't I know you- Tom Hanks do a movie about yeah, that? Yeah, it was, it was about that one, yes. Apollo 13. Okay. Anyways, but... It was right around that time when the media changed and it stopped being about the facts and started being more about the emotional side of it. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
at the end of it, Spritzer was not granted clemency after his case was hurt, re-hurt. As Governor Ryan left office in January 2003, he publicly pardoned four out of the 164 inmates sitting on death row in Illinois at the time. At the same time, though, he offered a blanket clemency to the remaining 160 prisoners, including Spritzer. Oh. So his his sentence was basically, um, what's the word? I just uh, it's um commuted. Yes, to life in prison. So okay, when the families, so that's good. yeah. So when the families of the victims heard Ryan's decision, they were filled with indignation, which I get because it's their family. Right. I, when I they dig. Com- we, they were completely outraged and made a vow to fight for justice to be restored in the state of Illinois. But their disgruntlement carried no weight in the long run. Spritzer had won, and he was granted a reprieve. Now let's talk about Thomas. This one I think you might like. Okay. Do tell. Yeah. When it came time for. 23-year-old Thomas Cocorales to go on trial, his attorneys tried to prevent the prosecution from admitting his confession into evidence. However, it really didn't matter. In 1984, he accepted a plea bargain offered by the prosecution. If he pled guilty to the charges he was facing for the murder of Lori, he would receive a... Oh, I'm getting a Charlie horse. He would receive a prison sentence of 70 years. However, ow, he was sentenced... pause? No, I'm good. I just need to work it out. However, he was sentenced under the old Illinois guidelines, commonly referred to by the inmates as day-for-day system. For every day he spent in prison, as long as he maintained good behavior, he would receive a day cut off of his sentence. In other words, he would only be required to serve 35 years in prison if he managed to avoid any significant disciplinary sanctions. Now, he was up for parole in September of 2017. I got to stand up. Hang on. Ugh. Oh, sorry. Arise, oh squatchy one. Can you hear me? Okay. So, he was up for parole in September of 2017, and part of the Illinois parole eligibility requirements mandated for him to provide the board with an approved residence. Okay. Now, before his parole would be granted, he wanted to live with his other brother, but they denied that request. When he failed to meet the housing requirement, his petition was rejected. Now, at the time of the rejection, the board informed him they would reevaluate his petition again after 18 months. Okay, I think I'm good. Before the parole board issued their statement postponing his release, Lori's family was infuriated at the possibility that he would be released from prison. Although they were glad the decision was delayed for 18 months, they knew that if he was able to meet the requirements, they, there wasn't anything they could do legally to keep him in prison. On fe- Friday, March 29, 2019, just a couple years ago, he was granted parole after securing approved housing at Wayside Cross Ministries. They're a nonprofit organization that offers dormitory-style housing options for registered sex offenders in Aurora. In addition to housing, the residents at Wayside are also provided employment opportunities through the vocational outreach programs offered by the ministry. Which is fantastic, So not only are they getting housing because they're registered sex offenders, you know, which is very rare that they get housing anyways, they are also getting a job. Which is fantastic. To rehabilitate them as opposed to, you know, the recidivism rate or whatever. Which is what you and I talked about. It the reason why I tend to want to hire felons and things like right. that is because well, not only will the state pay for it, but uh, for <laughs> up to six months. But 
everybody needs a second chance. Yeah, if they truly deserve it. If they deserve it. If they, you know, okay, I'm not trying to discount what he did, okay? No. What he did was horrible. Very much so. However, people change day by day. Yes. And maybe he is truly a reformed person. Right. You know, who realizes what he did and he's getting mental help, especially now, we're talking 2019. Right. So the... I love the mental health system in, at play now. I, we need more mental health facilities. We do. We totally do. But and we need to recognize it as a just. I mean, it's a thing that you need to have medication for, and you're not getting it if you just throw them in jail and let them out. Well, exactly, exactly. So if it, I, I'm pretty sure he's probably getting a lot of mental health help. Oh, I'm sure he is. Medication mm-hmm. and and support to keep him on the straight and narrow. Right. And I'm not, I'm not saying that we should forget what he did, okay? No. I'm not saying. But, you know, and I ask all my listeners this, or all of our listeners, are you the same person you were at 20? There's yeah. a good person to ask. Hold on. Because Maritza and I have known each other now for 30 years. She says you're worse than you were back then. Oh, I know I am. <laughs> but are we the same people that we were when we were 19, 20? 21, 22. No, of course not. She's over there shaking her head going, no. We've we've changed drastically. It's 30 fucking years. Right. You know, if you're the same person that you were at 19, 20, 21, you've got bigger problems than what you think. You need to go seek some mental help because you haven't evolved. Right. And, you know, I was telling my caseworker, you know, it's like, at what point do you have to stop paying your debt to society? (laughs) Right. You know, it's like I've already proven that I haven't gone back. I haven't committed more crimes. I've been rehabilitated. I'm a productive member of society for the most part, except for I'm friends with you. Um, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, at what point can I say, okay, you know what? I'm sorry for what I did, but when am I going to stop being punished for it? Well, and that, that's my whole thing, you know, yeah. and on, on a very serious note, you and I talked about this before. The reason why I like people who are indigent and felons is because y'all are the most seriously because I treat people fairly good, the most loyal people I could ever have working for me. Right. Well, I'm I mean, loyal to a fault anyways, but yeah. I know for a fact, and this isn't just speaking out my ass, I know that you would put your life on the line for me. I know that. I might step in front of a matchbox car for you. Oh, you're a dick. Here I am trying to give you a compliment. You know what? Kidding. You kiss my big, fat, white ass. You want to see my brown eye again? No, That's no. right. No. <laughs> I'm a weird one to work for, folks. I'm very, very odd to work for. Yeah. I've been mooned I don't know how many times. But I make I make our work environment fun. That's my job. Okay. Because look, and think about it. I'm if, crazy now, but okay. If you went and worked for anybody else's production company, you would not oh. have as much fun as you do here. That's true. I'll give you that. Because I'm I'm not uptight and uh and we you know, I try to make the work environment. For the most fun. part, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean there are sometimes like when the numbers are getting low, I'm like, um, what can we do to change this shit? Yeah, fix it now. No. Fix it. Let's do the fucking revenue. Revenue. Yeah. So since Thomas served the maximum prison sentence that was legally acquired, he was released without the typical release conditions being, being in, in, I say employed, but implemented. Be- basically, he completed the mandatory supervised release period while he was incarcerated. Therefore, he was not required to be regulated by post-prison supervision rules and regulations. He will only be required to register his address in the sex offender registry since he was also convicted of a sex offense charge for the rest of his life. That's fair, though. That is fair. fair. 
Because while I, I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's reformed. He did rape somebody. He raped somebody, so you need to be able to keep an eye on him. It's called being held accountable. Right, and in case he does do it again. I'm not saying that he will, but, yeah. you know, so people know that, he's, that he could possibly be a danger. Yeah, no, totally. So after he was released, he changed his tune regarding his participation in the murders. He completely denied participating in any sort of occult-style rituals back in the 80s. In fact, despite his confession at the time of his arrest in 2019, I actually listened to his, his interview, he claimed that he never actually killed anybody. He says, I was stuck doing time for something I did not do. According to one article I found with an interviewer from CBS News, Thomas, quote, insisted he didn't kill anyone and did not participate in ritualistic mutilation or torture. When the interviewer asked him directly if cannibalism claims were accurate, he said no. Thomas told the reporter, I look dead in your eyes and tell you the God's honest truth. No, I had no participation, no knowledge, and no participation, he said it twice, in none of those crimes. He needs to speak better English, too. None, none. He needs to speak more better English. He does. As a matter of fact, Thomas said that when he was interrogated by the authorities, he was high on drugs, which I can understand. Well, yeah, dude, it's the fucking 80s. Hello. 80s throughout the 90s, man. Doesn't yeah. matter if you're like, uh, you know, hanging out with your friends or what. You did some, you did your fair amount of dough. Yeah, you kind of did. I mean, I it was like, the late 80s when I started drinking. I got to point out something, though, that Bertz and I talked about earlier. So, talked about my buddy Chad, he's going to shoot him with all the time, right? Well, he smokes a lot of pot. And oh. I went up there to his house by myself. Oh. Smoked a little bit of weed. And L- then got lost. Little Miss Missy over here sits there and goes, you got high on the marijuanas. You're, you're a drug addict. Oh, my God. I just smoked some weed. That was it. And now she's like, hey, where's your bong at? Dude. I know, right? <laughs> Dude, where's where's the bong? <laughs> I, I, I like fucking with Maritza because she does have a good sense of humor. And we do a lot of comparisons to then and now and the evolution of, of just who we are as people. Mm-hmm. And well, and I tell everybody th- the same thing. Like, Maritza is like my best friend in the world. I, oh, I, I know. She's like my bestest. But she knows fucking everything about me. Okay. <coughs> then I have a question for her when we get off the air. No, you don't. Yes. Yes, I do. She won't tell you. She keeps my secrets. That's okay, because I think I have a theory, and would you tell me if I was right? Nope. Didn't think so. Secret, secret. I've I got get a, a secret. secret. <laughs> but anyways, my sister and I were talking about that same thing, because back in the day, my mom was against marijuana. It was like, that shit is evil. Well, she didn't say shit, but whatever. I mean, but I was allowed to smoke in the house. But she couldn't tell the difference between cigarette smoke and pot smoke. So I would just roll a joint and pretend like it was a cigarette, Did and she'd be fine. Did her not work? She just never really knew. Big and so now it's like, she, my mom, I'll go, I'm going to go out to the garage. She goes, oh, okay. And then my sister goes, what are you going to go out there for? I said, I'm going to go smoke a bowl. And my sister goes, you let her know that? I said, I don't care. My, our mom has eaten edibles for crying out loud. I do not care if she knows if I smoke a bowl. What surprised me, <clears throat> and then we'll finish this here up, is that like when I went to pick up Jake in, in Vegas, mm-hmm. I found out that pot's legal there. And Peggy, oh. my mom, is actually the one who told me, dude, they got dispensers? She's, oh, yes. And I'm going to go visit a dispensary and see if I can get some fucking bud, man. And <laughs> she didn't even miss a beach. That's probably a good idea. Just remember, you can't smoke inside the house. Oh. <laughs> 
What? <laughs> what? <I'm... laughs> Hello, <laughs> testing? Is this... Am I in the ha- fucking Twilight Zone? Hello, and you are? <laughs> yeah, I think I walked in the wrong house. I'm like, where's where's Rod Serling? Am I on the Am I on the show Punk? Yeah. Is that what this is? Like somebody's just fucking yeah. with me? Where's Ashton Kutcher? <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I mean, my mom has even gone into the weed store with me. <coughs> Holy shit. Yeah, she don't care. <laughs> so, um... Where was I? Oh, as a matter of fact, Thomas said, oh, said that during his confession, he provided details that only someone there at the time of the crime would have knowledge of. He said he only knew those details because law enforcement officials provided them. He said, no, what, no, what they told me like a dumb fool. I repeated it back to them during that interview in 2019. Thomas said that at the time of Lori's murder, he actually had a solid alibi. He and his father were together visiting the cemetery where his mother is buried. When he was asked why he pled guilty, if he was truly innocent, he said that he was he was pressured to do so by his attorney. That makes sense, actually. It that, does. That does seriously track. Yeah, because public defenders don't care. Yeah. For the most part. I will say I had a very good public defender, but then I think he felt bad for me because I was so young. <laughs> <laughs> but... You know, I think that's why a lot of the officers took me under their wing, too, and why I was able to change the way I did. Because, you know what I mean? They, they like, gave me the benefit of the doubt because I was so young, as opposed to assuming that I was guilty of everything. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So when Lori's brother, Mark, was interviewed by the reporter, he had his own opinions, of course. He was only 14 years old, and this part broke my heart, when his sister was abducted and murdered. Now, remember, she was the one that was abducted right outside of her place of employment, and when they, uh, when they called in the missing persons report and the officers came to investigate, they found her shoes, and her, it's like she was snatched right out of her shoes. Right. Okay, so Lori was getting ready to leave for her. And he said he remembers it as if it happened yesterday. She was getting ready to leave for her shift at the Remax real estate office. And Mark remembers saying to her, I can, and he was 14, I can walk you to work, you know, make sure you're okay. She responded by telling him, no, everything's fine. That was the last time she was seen alive. So I'm pretty sure he holds on to a lot of guilt for that too, because he didn't walk her to work. You know what I mean? Okay, yeah. I mean, because that's what tore my heart up. is because I'm seeing it from this 14-year-old's perspective. So while investigating the call, the authorities said it was obvious Lori struggled with her abductors. Her personal belongings, including the makeup bag, her keys, and her shoes were scattered around the parking lot. Mark said he doesn't believe Thomas can be redeemed for the acts he committed against Lori. He said, quote, my biggest fear is that he reoffends, which he said he's pretty sure will happen. 100%. The guy's heartless. He has no soul. Now, I will say this. It's 2022. Okay, so at least, what, three years have passed? Yeah. Yep. Three years have passed. There has been no report saying he has reoffended or anything. I mean, he's not been back in jail. He continues to register his address. He's following all the rules he's supposed to follow. Now, I'm not saying he won't reoffend, but considering he was, I would say he was institutionalized after 30 some years. Mm-hmm. You know, considering that fact for him not to reoffend in the three year period of time is pretty remarkable. Because I have seen people who have done five years get out and be back within 30 days. So. You know what I mean? So, yeah. And I'm not going to talk about this last part about him honoring his sister. You know, you can read it on the blog. But, um, so basically, I guess we kind of answered all the questions. I was going to ask you how you felt about the the three men getting such, 
you know, harsh sentences when Robin got basically nothing. I think that the true injustice here is that Robin really got nothing. Yeah. I mean, yes, he got 120 years, but I'm sorry. He was he basically participated in every single one of those murders. He led every single one of those murders. Plus the torture involved in the survivors and his ex-girlfriends and his wife and all that shit. Correct. You know, so he I I believe that is the true injustice right there. Yeah, I just I'm I'm feeling bad for Andrew and for what was his name? Spritzer or Spangler? Spritzer. You know, especially Spritzer because God man. Yeah. Especially with an IQ of seventy one. Right. And it just makes me wonder if he really did know truly right from wrong. But I kinda believe him that he was led Oh, I kinda believe so too. By the cops, because it kind of happened a little bit a lot in the 80s, man. Oh, kind of a little a lot. Yeah. I mean, let's not talk about the whole witch hunt against the uh, quote-unquote daycare providers that were supposedly molesting children in the 80s. That never happened. Which actually makes me sad. Well, well, let me tell you why. Why? Because you were a child in the eighties, and, in you the 80s didn't get and I did not get molested once, and it See makes me wonder I mean? what's we wrong with me. <laughs> like now, I want to go back and Say, stomp what, my feet what, and go. What? You need to molest me. I <laughs> why demand do you care? better service. <laughs> I demand better service. I want to be molested right now. No, because remember how they had convinced these children that their daycare providers had harmed them. Right, and then it all came about like out of like the hundred that they did. Two did actually commit yeah, the crime. Yeah, one or two, yeah. 98 of them just went and lost their businesses and their whole livelihood. Their whole lives. I mean, they were in prison for how many years? Yep. Yeah, all because these psychiatrists and these investigators, like, coached the children to say what they wanted them to say. Yeah, it's fucked up. So, and so I can also believe, I mean, and this might sound weird coming from me, that I can also believe that with an IQ of 71, that... Robin could have convinced him that he had special powers of, con- you know what I mean? Oh, easily. Wait, totally. It was, he probably didn't even have to do a lot of convincing to say, you know what? I have the power to destroy you if you don't do what I say. Right. And he, he would believe it whether it's true or not because he's got an IQ of fucking 71, folks. Yeah. He would believe you if you said that sky was purple. You know, he'd be like, well, I thought that was blue. But you know what? You're probably right. Yeah, you exactly. Know? So, yeah. You just... Can't judge a book by its cover. That's my whole thing, you know. And if, if he is truly reformed and there's no indication so far of nothing happening. Yeah. You know. Which, it, like I said, statistically, that's pretty good. Right, right. And I'm just thinking the the catalyst to the crime is out of his life. Yes. Very much Being so. Robin. Yes. So that I honestly think, and if I'm wrong, then I'm sorry, but I think that the chances of him re- reoffending are fairly low, provided, provided he, he continues, yeah, get hooked up with the same type of person. And there's the caveat right there, is because a lot of times people seek out, like we always say, same, oh, yeah. same, you know, because there's something missing in their lives, right, and. They want somebody to lead and guide them. Right. So as long as he stays away from the kind of person that Robin is. Right. And stays with the positive influences. Right. Because it can go either way. Right. Well, and that's one of the things that I think kept me out is the fact that I basically cut off all ties with everybody from my past. Yeah, it's the smartest thing you can do. Yeah, I was like, you know what? I was nothing productive being around you. And I don't want to go back to that. I didn't like where it led me, and I don't want it to lead me there again. Now let's all pray. Dear Jesus. 
Now I'm friends with you, and I want to hang myself. <laughs> but no. Uh, All seriousness aside, no. I adore you. I adore you for the you, most man. part. Well, like like I was talking about earlier, this business really doesn't run without you. You do so much behind the scenes, and it's made it's I, made everything run a well, whole it, lot it, smoother. It cracks me up because I mean, even your son. Like, looks at me sometimes and goes, well, what do you do? I was like, you have no clue what I do, do you? You <laughs> yeah, think no I'm just shit. sitting over here on my ass with my thumb up my ass just <laughs> waiting for somebody to say something? Yeah, no, no, bitch, I'm busy. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I uh, I keep you pretty busy. And then when I ain't got nothing for you, what I appreciate is when I have nothing for you to do, you find shit to do. Well, and not just that is, I mean, we've realized that I kind of anticipate your needs without you even saying it. Because I'll call That's you up true. and say, hey, this is this. And you're like, I was just going to call you. Uh-huh. So that's fantastic, man. I can't I, I can't replace you. Like, seriously, I, I, I could probably search for another personal assistant over and over again. I can never get another one of you. And that's you just the facts. I know because it's I'm one of a kind. This is true. Who, and who else has a Sasquatch working for him? Come on. Feeling pretty lucky here. The Smithsonian's still after you. My I'm biggest fan lucky. is hearting me right now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do the, the Korean heart. This is the Korean one. The, yeah. Does it look like a Korean character? It's a little little heart. That looked like a lip. Never mind. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at <laughs> BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at Brutal Nation. Get the full story without any of my bullshit. And actually, this episode here, we don't have a lot of my bullshit. We don't. Like, I didn't make too many fucking jokes, which shocks me. It just really goddamn... Losing my touch. That's what. All right. This show is copyrighted 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. If you use any part of this, then you're a thieving bastard. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>